Hello and welcome to the Cardiology Nurse Forum. I'm Charlie Spencer. And I'm Alethea Bautista. And we're a nurse down today, aren't we, Ali? Definitely. Short staffing has hit us too. I know. I suppose Al has an excuse of actually being at work and apparently being quite busy. So we'll let him off this once, I guess. So it's really exciting today that we're introducing our new series of mini podcasts, although it's still over half an hour long, I think, of interviews where we post questions to people with diverse and interesting careers in cardiovascular nursing. And first off, we've gone straight to the top and uh, Liz Newbeck who's the president of the ACNAP, which is the ESC's Society for Nursing and Allied Health Professions. She was super approachable and uh, it was really good fun. What did you make of it, Ali? I'm definitely very honoured to hear her in our in our podcast. And it's funny because um, recently, for the recent ACNAP training for syncope, it's an excellent training because it's modular, kind of one hour or two hours they have to allocate on four sessions, I think it was. And it is Liz Newbeck who... who interviewed oh, me for the um for the OSCE training of it and luckily I did pass so so after that that um, I found out that you've interviewed her and it's interesting to know to link together who how her life was fantastic I wasn't able to register for that syncope workshop but I saw that looked really good and uh, I know through a lot of the ACA NAP uh, meetings and things there's a series of workshops and mentorship type programs where they help people with a variety of things and you get these sort of one-to-ones and I think it's their first conference face-to-face back this month isn't it so maybe we should make a resolution for next year Ali that we get to the ACNAP Euro Heart we definitely need to yes in person because we're missing out basically because it's a good opportunity as she said on your interview the term opportunities event and until you link to other people that's the only time you would know the opportunities there around yeah and of course we can then report on all of that to the listeners of the podcast and members of the forum and if it happens to be somewhere hot and sunny we'll take one for the team won't we yeah absolutely absolutely. maybe we'll invite al to but you know we'll see (laughs) yeah Excellent. So without further ado, then I will introduce the podcast, which is go straight into asking Liz to introduce herself. Enjoy. Please introduce yourself and your current role. Okay, so uh, my name is Liz Newbeck. I'm Professor of Cardiovascular Nursing and I'm head of the Cardiovascular Health Department at Edinburgh Napier uh, University. Uh, I also am the current president of the Association of Cardiovascular Nurses and Allied Professionals of the European Society of Cardiology, and I am the NHS Research Scotland Cardiovascular Clinical Network lead. So I wear three different hats, uh, which keeps me quite busy. Yeah, I bet. And you've got a lot of affiliations with other universities as well, is that right? That's right, yes. And you probably noticed that they're Australian. Uh, I spent 11 years of my career in Australia and I did my PhD at the University of Sydney and I maintained strong relationships there. So I'm very uh, lucky to have those ongoing collaborations with colleagues in Australia who are doing some really interesting things and also to be supported by expert cardiovascular nurse leaders such as Robin Clark and Robin Gallagher who have done an enormous amount to develop the careers of um, cardiovascular nurses and I count myself fortunate to have been one of them. Fantastic and then another thing we'd like to do in this is uh, ask us to tell us something about your life outside of nursing and healthcare and education. Yeah, of course. So uh, I have one daughter 
who is nearly 16, and I have a fur child as well, Alfie, who, if we're lucky, will bark and interrupt us during this. Um, and we live in Edinburgh in Scotland. We moved back to Edinburgh, where I'm from originally, just over five years ago now. Um, and as I said, I spent 11 years in Sydney. That's where my daughter was born. My husband is Australian, uh, which was the reason for going to Australia in the first place. Um, I'm, I've taken up knitting lately. I'm a keen knitter, not necessarily a very competent knitter, but I really enjoy that as a sort of recreational activity. And I find it's really useful to de-stress by having something like that to do. Uh, and I'm also a skier. And I took a career break uh, just around my 30th birthday to spend a season in the French Alps as a ski guide. Oh, wow. That sounds like a fun sabbatical. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. And there's Alfie chatting to us now. <laughs> Excellent. Brilliant. What made you choose nursing as a profession? And uh, what was your background beforehand? So I entered nursing at the age of 17. So I don't, don't really say I have much of a background before that. And um, I went straight into it. When I started nursing, we didn't get a lot of career opportunity advice. And it seemed like a, an interesting thing that would allow me to travel. And that's what I most wanted to do. So I went into a degree programme at Queen Margaret College, as it was at the time. And um, subsequent to that, I have used it to travel quite extensively. So I've achieved my objective. That's really interesting. Can you tell us a bit more about what's led you to your current role? Yeah, so um, I had no ambition to do research. I thought research was incredibly dry and boring when we were taught it at university. And it really wasn't something I wanted to do. But um, I went into a, I knew I didn't want to do surgical work uh, from pretty much the early days of, of my nursing degree. And so I decided I wanted to do a medical job and I got a job in respiratory medicine and I worked there for nine months and it wasn't, it was interesting, I quite enjoyed it. And then I came back to Scotland to take a post that happened to be in a cardiac ward and that was it. That was the love of my life. I'd found the, the real interest, but I was still very much with a clinical focus. And so I continued working in different cardiology settings. I worked in a general cardiology ward in a coronary care unit. And back in 1998, which I'm beginning to show my age here, I got the opportunity to do the ENB254, which was a specialist cardiac nursing course delivered by the English National Board at the Middlesex Hospital in London. In that, I really discovered how much uh, educational value you could get out of being a cardiac nurse. And I was so grateful for the opportunity. And so I worked at the Middlesex Hospital until uh, I got an opportunity to do this job as a cardiac rehab nurse at uh, Hammersmith Hospital's NHS Trust based at Charing Cross in London. And I realised how much I enjoyed preventive health. This is what I want to do. I want to help support people who have had a cardiovascular event to maximise their ability to live life to the full. And that's through sort of thinking about how the environment supports people, what, how do they live in their family lives, and how can we help support people beyond a cardiac event so that they reduce their chance of having a further cardiac event. I'm still working clinically at this stage, I got involved in some projects around how we might evaluate the effects. So we did a lot of audit 
and we began to do some research and we supported a very large research project called EuroAction. But I still was a clinician, a pure clinician, but now beginning to think, well, actually, there's some questions I can answer here. And at that stage, I met my husband and we decided to move to Australia. So I'd been working as a cardiac rehab nurse for five and a half years and I was looking for a clinical post in Australia. And I fell into a position as a heart failure nurse working at Concord Hospital in Sydney with uh, Professor Ben Friedman. And I am not a heart failure nurse by inclination. I think they do the most amazing job. But it's a different kind of calling, I suppose. So I went to a meeting that was led by Professor Julie Redfern, who's a physiotherapist and an exceptional researcher who has not long finished her own PhD at that time. And she was talking about a programme that she had got funding for, a research programme, where they were going to deliver a telephone-based intervention for people who didn't go to cardiac rehab. And this seemed so interesting to me. So I went up to Julie after the meeting and I said, could I consider working for you as your research nurse? And so Julie emailed me that night and said, I've had a look at your CV, which unfortunately I had fairly up to date for the move to Australia. And she said, your CV looks great. How about doing a PhD? And this is how random it was for me, the decision to do a PhD. And of course, I asked a few people about it and I hadn't really contemplated an academic career at that point. But um, I was incredibly lucky with the support that I got from Julie, from Ben Friedman and also from Adrian Bowman, who's a public health physician and a world leader in physical activity. These three became my supervisors for my PhD. And I realised how important the role of nurses in research is as research leaders, as people who understand in a way the patient journey better than other healthcare professionals because we're so closely tied to the patients. And we can be their advocates in clinical work, but we can also be their advocates in research and we can showcase their voice and help to amplify it and ensure that we have better opportunities for patients. And so it's just gone on from there. I came back to the UK uh, just over five years ago to take up this post as a professor at Edinburgh Napier University. And it's been a wonderful experience moving to Scotland, moving back, making connections within Europe and having these chances to do lots of things. And I think for me, um, the pleasure in working with such amazing people can't be underestimated. In research, you get such a rich opportunity to network, to meet others and to share and build better practice with the patient's interest at heart. Fantastic. Yeah, really fascinating. So, and again, you've probably answered this, but the other question was about what education have you taken and how did it benefit you? So I think you've probably covered that in the previous answer. Was there any other specific courses or? Yeah, I guess, I mean, obviously I, I did an undergraduate degree with an honours um, component and I did subsequently a variety of different training programs like the EMB254. I also did a course in adolescent and adult congenital heart disease. I did an MSc module in diabetes care. So I've done a few different activities to develop my professional growth. As I said, I fell into doing a PhD and I wouldn't necessarily say that 
doing a PhD is something uh, you have to be the best academic in the world. You don't necessarily need to have had all those skills. What you do need is persistence and curiosity. And as long as you've got those attributes, then a PhD should be viewed as a research training. You're not supposed to know how to be a researcher at the start of your PhD. The PhD should, should enable you to learn those skills. So if you're somebody who's contemplating doing something more, then do explore the idea of doing a PhD and, and don't be put off by this sort of perception that somebody who's got a PhD is somehow um something really special. I'd say about 10% intelligence and about 90% is just sheer bloody minded persistence. Yeah, really good to hear because I think it can be really intimidating for nurses, can't it? The idea of, of research and um, especially high level education like PhDs mm. and that title doctor as well. Yes, which is a, an interesting one, isn't it, in the healthcare environment? Because how do you use that title appropriately so that people don't get confused about your role and of course I wouldn't use my uh, professional title of doctor in a healthcare setting but I'm very very relaxed about using my first name anyway I don't particularly uh, like to be addressed in a very formal way because I think we should be breaking down hierarchies and silos and, and thinking about how we work together with the interests of the patient at the core. I would say almost all nurses that I meet uh, feel exactly the same. And then how would you describe your role and responsibilities in, in your primary role as Professor at Edinburgh Napier? So I lead the Cardiovascular Health Research Centre and in that my role is somewhat strategic about how do I develop others. So I have a responsibility to build research capability, research capacity. I need to bring in grants and conduct research and publish papers. So there's some more uh, less strategic and more operational things that I have to do in order to continue to grow the centre. Um, and I think there's, there's a teaching responsibility that I have, but that's more in the PhD supervision area. So I'm really keen to develop PhD researchers and very happy to talk to anybody who's considering doing a PhD either to talk about doing it with me or just more generally about where they might like to develop an idea and how they could approach other supervisors because these things are the way we, we grow as a, a profession and have more opportunities that way. So I think there's, you know, there's a range. I have a team who I work with and I meet with them regularly to ensure that we know what our objectives are, where we're trying to get to, how to build our capacity there, how to get grants that might, we might be able to develop better um, solutions for people who have cardiovascular disease. Sounds like an awful lot. <laughs> <laughs> so next question, what gives you the greatest job satisfaction throughout your career? I think seeing an impact of our work on real world practice. So we when we can actually look and say it's made a difference. So for me, it's not about the publications. It's not about the grants. It's not about, you know, personal success. So I get the most satisfaction from seeing if we've actually been able to change practice or if anybody that I've supported has success. You know, that's something that is so important to me to see that people develop, that they get other opportunities. Um, and I celebrate that more than my own successes. But I will just put a wee plug in because we've just had a review published on spontaneous coronary artery disease, which was an idea that was brought to us by patients. 
So rather than me coming up with the idea and saying this is what I want to do, the patients told us this was a problem. So we then worked together on an idea and uh, we wrote the paper together with our patient rep and it's just been published and I think that's been one of the most gratifying things we've done because we've done it for them. It's not been that we've identified a problem ourselves, it's actually been that the patients now feel confident to approach us and to say we trust you to take our story forward and see how we can improve the situation. Yeah, I've just seen that as recent publication, isn't it? I haven't had um, yes, yeah. the opportunity to uh, read it yet. But uh, that's a fascinating concept because it is, especially SCAD is a, a big problem. And I, I know in cardiac rehab, some of the patients, especially sort of younger women that, that have that, mm-hmm. that don't feel that they fit into that normal demographic of cardiac rehab, but they struggle to understand where they fit in that scheme of people mm. having had a heart attack did that have anything to do with it because there's a team in Leicester aren't there that, that lead there on is, but no, but of course we'd love to collaborate with them but yeah. I think they're more focused on the um, mechanisms of development of SCAD and um, we've been quite inspired by the work of uh, Jacqueline Saw and colleagues and uh, there there are a number of others predominantly in Uh, the Netherlands, in Canada and in uh, the States who are looking at how we can support recovery. Uh, And I think that's uh, something we're currently lacking in the UK is a supportive recovery programme for people who've had a SCAD. Uh, Some people are fortunate to get enrolled in cardiac rehab, but it doesn't really fit their needs. So we need to think about how we adapt to support people better. Just following on from that, in terms of seeing that research realised in a change in practice, Mm. there tends to be a bit of a lead time for that, doesn't there, for research sort of getting into practice? So how do you deal with that or how long has it been after the research has, has impacted it? Yeah, it varies, of course. It takes a lot longer for a drug trial to impact on clinical practice. Because my research has predominantly been in, in digital health, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has had a huge impact on uptake of digital health. And I think that's been really fascinating because for a long time we've been saying this and then suddenly there's just this burgeoning interest. And what I hope is that we can continue those gains and not go back to what we know and like and are comfortable doing because there's a certain amount of comfort in delivering a service and face-to-face and it's you get that gratification of the interaction uh, that maybe some of the digital tools don't offer. But in fact, they offer huge benefits to patients who can access support when they need it, where they need it, at a time that's convenient to them. So I'd love to see that progress made. But another example of somewhere where we've made particular, (laughs) sorry about the barking, uh, another example of where we've made particular gains is we looked at the real world evidence for use of uh, non-vitamin K oral antagonists or NOACs. And we wrote a proposal to the World Health Organization to add NOACs to the essential medicines list. And this was a group of us who went on the World Heart Federation Emerging Leaders Program, which I strongly encourage any nurse who's interested in developing global connections to participate in. And we wrote this application and we were successful. So now we know that NOACs are available in a range of countries as a direct result of the work that we did. So, yes, I think that's been a really uh, important thing for me to feel like what we do makes a difference. 
Brilliant. Yeah, that's fascinating. I guess that shows it's not necessarily the linear thing you think of the piece of research you've done that directly changing the thing that you thought it yeah. was going to change, but more about some of those overarching connections that you can have by being in a position. And like you say, global health, obviously there's huge health inequalities, aren't there? So uh, I yeah. guess a change like that can make a huge difference in developing countries. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, we certainly hope so. And I think access globally is hugely important. And to see that we as nurses can influence that is quite gratifying yeah fantastic really inspiring and then the following question from that was what has been the greatest challenge you've faced (laughs) in your career there are a lot of challenges you face in research and you have to have a degree of resilience because you get a lot of knockbacks so amongst all the successes you have you also have probably two or three times as many knockbacks where you don't get the paper published or you don't get the grant you applied for and so I think understanding that mechanism and that everybody goes through it can be really helpful because otherwise you do feel quite saddened when you get a a knock back again and it's a sort of ongoing uh, grind in some ways if you don't look at it with the view that you know we have highs and lows and celebrate the highs and allow yourself 24 hours to grieve the lows and then and then move on. I will say I had a one-year-old when I started my PhD, so trying to be a mother to a young child uh, and also do a PhD was definitely a little bit more complex, but I I still don't think I'd call it my greatest challenge. I think sometimes the greatest challenge is just perseverance. The other challenge that we have as researchers is that often we are on short-term contracts, and I had a series of short-term contracts, two years, three years, four years, before I got my permanent contract at Napier. And there is a little bit of sort of constant anxiety. And it's something I feel strongly with my team that it's it's problematic if I don't secure funding for them. So it, it's an ongoing low level anxiety more than one single challenge. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, I've heard in research, you have to sort of understand that there's a different pace. And like you say, that there are going to be a lot of knockbacks and there's a lot of stages of work to secure funding, particularly. And yeah, that certainly sounds like challenge enough (laughs) for me, for sure. So I had a general question about how much of your role is clinical and how much is devoted to leadership and research. And I would be right in saying your role is now entirely academic, but obviously with a huge amount of research. Do you still have any element that's clinical or when did that sort of phase out in your Yeah, career? so I have an honorary appointment at NHS Lothian. I've actually signed up as a vaccinator. So I've been doing some clinical shifts recently, uh, which has been interesting. My ideal situation would be to actually work maybe one day a week or a couple of days a month in a clinical role in cardiac. And this is where I think we've got some challenges that we still need to overcome because clinical academic roles for nurses tend to assume that you will work across the entire spectrum of healthcare. So if you're a professor of nursing working in a healthcare environment, you end up having to cover everything. And I have no personal interest, and of course others may be different, in working in an area that's not cardiology. So for me, that's not an attractive rule yet. But I hope and I think that there are some uh, 
changes to the clinical academic research career framework that we might be able to see that a bit more and we might be able to see a reward for people doing research. I mean, it really ought to be an expectation of nurses that we do some form of research during our day within the clinical environment because we know how important that is to patients. Patients do better if they're in a research active hospital. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think it would raise the profile of academic careers, wouldn't it? If academics and researchers like yourself are, are working, you know, alongside um, other nurses, it would be um, yeah, a real eye opener, I imagine, for many people. So you've given loads of advice about really speaking to somebody like yourself and your willingness to talk to people looking at research careers. But I had a question about what advice would you give someone aspiring to a role like yours? Yeah, so I think it would be very difficult to do this job without having done an advanced degree. Many universities will expect that. So you need to think about what kind of advanced degree you're going to do, whether it's a professional doctorate or PhD uh, in the first instance. Then getting the supervisory team right is critical because if you've got a good supervisory team, they will put you in a way of getting all the things, all the metrics that count towards professional growth and development. So for a researcher, the key things that universities are looking for are service to the community. So things like your work with the Cardiology Nurse Forum, uh, my work with ACNAP, my prior work with ACRA, that's service. That means we're going out and we're doing something that makes a difference within our, our professional community. Then they're looking for publications, unfortunately, whether well, whether you say fortunately or unfortunately, but we have to share our message. And then they're looking for grant funding. They're looking for research supervision, so opportunities for you to grow others and show that you're growing others around you. So a good research supervisor will set you on that path from the start. So as I said, I was supervised by Ben Friedman, Julie Redfern and Adrian Bowman. And what they did for me was they pushed me early to publish, to present and to get grants. And by the time I finished my PhD, I had five publications. I had funding for my own as a scholarship, a research scholarship that was externally funded and peer reviewed. And I was in a really good position then to get a postdoctoral fellowship. But if they hadn't pushed me to do these things that are not necessarily marked within the PhD, so they're not mandated, because a PhD just needs to demonstrate that it's original research and it contributes in it in a certain way. But having had that extra boost to do other things meant that I was in a good position to progress. So I think that's definitely about supervision. And I will say that there's very few topics I can imagine that you would research solidly for three or four years that you wouldn't get bored with. And if you've got a bad supervisor, then that's going to not help you to keep going. But if you've got good supervisors, then that's more important than the topic because they will help you grow your career and they should help you and they should give you connections and opportunities. So, again, you may have covered this, but what's the best advice you've ever received? Well, I think the advice I got throughout my PhD was phenomenally helpful. I think that idea of persistence, the idea of being a bit broader than just purely doing your research activity and just focusing in on that. So thinking about how you can connect and network and that connection has been hugely important to me. I've met so many people through those service activities that I possibly wouldn't have met 
Uh, and it does mean that people know me and, and know that I hope that I, I'm there to help. So I think that's probably been the most important single bit of advice is this idea of making important professional connections. Yeah, fantastic. And what are your ambitions for the future? So what I would love to do is to develop a unique approach towards cardiovascular health that embeds research better in clinical practice with a patient voice right at the front and centre. So when we think about traditional cardiovascular research, we're thinking about zebrafish and biomedical science and the clinical trials. But in fact, there's a whole world of stuff that we've been doing that many others are doing that I think if we joined it up together, we could improve um, the actual outcomes for patients who are, who are going through um, cardiovascular disease treatment at the moment. So it's not just about future drug discoveries, but it's also about how do we help people understand how to support somebody once they've had a cardiac event? How do we keep up with all the current clinical evidence and the emerging clinical evidence in a way that's responsive and helps us to develop our professional careers? I would really like to see a focus on breaking down some of the barriers that prevent people from having good access to healthcare, some of the siloing that we do. It might work from an organisational point of view, but it doesn't necessarily work from a patient point of view. So a typical patient may have diabetes, hypertension, some kind of cardiovascular condition, quite possibly rheumatoid arthritis. And they're seeing all the different people around that system And they're seeing them one at a time and they're not necessarily able to connect all of those dots. So I think we need to redesign our systems to support people better so that we're actually making a real difference. So I think that's what I would like to see. I'd like to see digital health becoming mainstream. I'd like to see us preparing students to use digital health right from the start of their undergraduate programmes so that it's an expectation that you understand these systems. So I think I would love to say that the work that we have done supports the goals of the World Heart Federation to reduce cardiovascular disease. That would be the you know the big ambition is can we really achieve this by taking a different approach to other centres and seeing if we can really uh, support people to do things differently. Fantastic. And also following up that, what do you see as the future of nursing in in research or nursing in general? Yeah, so I think we have got lots of opportunities that I hope can um, be addressed through some careful thinking about the way our roles are currently structured and how we can support it. I would like to see better career paths for nurses. I think at the moment we're rather limited, particularly if you want to stay in clinical practice. There's relatively little scope, but also if you want to have a a shared opportunity between clinical practice and academia, you end up with two jobs at full time instead of part-time jobs so I think that's that's a problem for people who are considering clinical academic careers and we need to mandate around that. I'd like to see that structure rewarded so you know if you're doing more you ought to be getting more either financial reward or reward in terms of travel and ability to go and do other things so I think there's still some work to be done to uh, help support people to make progress in their careers beyond what's currently there. I also think we need to 
start to see ourselves as more of an interdisciplinary grouping and how we work with others because that teamwork is the real way that we can uh, support all nurses to have better career opportunities. We learn from each other, we learn from each other's strengths and we shouldn't view nurses in any way as a career where it's it's stagnating and you just do it and you, you finish. There should be lots of opportunities. So I think for me, I'd love to see that future. I hope it can happen. And I think by having these kind of conversations, we can begin to see how we could break these down and, and make changes for the better. Fantastic. And could you sum up your values and attitude towards healthcare and your career in a few words? I think my values are probably about supporting others, whether that's patients or other members of staff. There's so many things that we can do by working together and, and supporting each other. I mean, it'd be lies to say I don't have any personal ambition, but my ambitions are much more about the growth of others and uh, helping others to have opportunities. So my values are probably around how I can see uh, a way to connect, to enable people to have uh, better opportunities, whether, as I say, whether it's patients or whether it's other staff, other members of the research team. And I think by doing that, that kind of, I would like to be generous and enabling of other people. And I think the real success I have had is the connections I've made and the fact that we're collaborating even now uh, so I think that's something I'd love others to have that shared opportunity to engage with everybody and develop their own careers. Yeah, fantastic. I think I've asked lots of questions. Um, was there anything else you wanted to draw listeners' attention to, Liz? I, I guess the only thing would be that there are lots of communities that you can participate in, and I strongly encourage you to do so. Uh, it is a way to network and meet your colleagues. It gives you so many opportunities. And I can't emphasize enough how important that's been to my career. Um, and I'm a member of BANK. I'm a member of the British Cardiac Society, the Scottish Cardiac Society. And of course, I'm a member of the ESC and the Association of Cardiovascular Nurses and Allied Professionals. And through those connections, I meet so many people and if you are considering developing your career, I think they are invaluable. So I strongly encourage you to become part of a professional association or multiple professional associations because of the benefit that you will accrue from it. And it's not just about uh, passively absorbing the information, it's about the opportunities that it gives you to connect with others, to create new research opportunities. And I suppose one final thing I'll say is use social media. It's your friend. You know, you, you will meet a lot of people through social media who can support you um, and who might share your message if you've got something you want to share. So uh, I'm not the best advocate for this because I sometimes struggle to remember to do it all. But I, I, I do really feel the importance of that. And I've made connections through Twitter in particular for colleagues that I'm now collaborating with um, and people are generally very friendly and very open to you approaching them. They don't, nobody minds. They, they'll usually respond and say something that, that will support your opportunities. So reach out to others. Don't be shy. 
uh, and and you can only ask and uh, that will probably be the secret to my success brilliant that's been my experience as well that um, you know twitter and various things online seem to flatten the hierarchy don't they and it's amazing who will respond uh, often very quickly mm. i know you're you're active on twitter two and a half thousand followers and counting so um yeah and yeah um, not the biggest audience ever uh, there are people who are better at it than me but you have to be very engaged to build a bigger audience but what i would say is i've got an audience who probably want to hear what I've got to say. Although I've, I've just been looking at it for a talk and I tweeted about this uh, SCAD paper, which I think is very clinically important and it's got something like 67,000 impressions already. But I also tweeted about a jumper that I knitted, so it's got a heart pattern and it's got three times as much <laughs> reach as my SCAD paper. So sometimes it's just about building your community and having a bit of fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Liz. Great pleasure. uh, Yeah, we look forward to hearing more uh, about what you're doing and what the next big project when you finish your term as president of ACNOP. Um, uh, I don't imagine you'll be sitting idle. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I really, really appreciate you talking to me today and um, look forward to seeing you again soon. Excellent. Well, I hope I'll see you in Madrid at the uh, Euro Heart Care Conference. So do a little plug for that at the very end. It's uh, a very exciting event this year because it's in partnership with the Heart Failure Association Conference. So two conferences under one roof for the same price, which is an exceptional value. And finally, we'll get to meet up again. Because uh, I think what we really want to emphasise is that this is not just a nursing conference. It's a conference for nurses and allied professionals and a whole range of health uh, care practitioners who have an interest in the patient journey and the patient voice. And that's where our focus is. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I really look forward to it. It's definitely on my wish list to get that Excellent. face next Excellent. year, maybe next year. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Nice to talk to you, Charlie. Thank you so much for your time, Liz. Really appreciate that. See you. Take care. All the best. Bye.